Today I am beginning a brand new series talking about lessons from the life of Joseph. You know, I know that a lot of people aren't excited about uh, studying the lives of people and learning things from them, but this is exactly what the Scripture says over in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Uh, it talks about that all of the things that happened to people in the Old Testament were written for our learning so that we through them might learn not to make the same mistakes. You know, typically people want to hear the, the things that are the more exciting things. It's kind of in a sense like uh, food, you know, that you want to go straight for the dessert. But if all you did was eat dessert, man, it would kill you in a short period of time. You need to eat your vegetables, your meats, your different things like that. And there, sure, there are things that are more exciting to some people than others. But these truths from the lives of people are how I've learned things. Let me just share some of these verses with you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me start with verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The point that's being made is that, you know, all of these millions of Jews, some people estimate there was three million Jews or more that came out of the land of Egypt. And he's saying all of them came out. All of them had the same opportunity. They ate of the same spiritual meat. They drank of the same spiritual rock, Christ, that followed them. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. That's an understatement because actually out of the millions of Jews that came out of the land of Egypt, there was only two, Joshua and Caleb, who entered into the promised land. Even Moses and Aaron didn't make it. But an entire generation died in the wilderness. And that wasn't God's will for them. But it happened because of their choices. They chose to disbelieve. They chose to be afraid. Some people may think, well, we don't have any choice in all of those kind of things, but you do. We have a choice whether we become bitter or better. Your life is basically a sum total of choices that you've made. Now that needs a little bit of explanation because I'm going to be teaching from the life of Joseph and Joseph certainly had things happen to him that were not a direct result of his choices. His brothers selling him into slavery, his master in slavery accusing him of committing adultery with his wife and then putting him into prison. There were things that happened to Joseph that were not of his choosing that he didn't directly cause to come to pass. And I believe that that same thing is true of us. We live in a fallen world and there's bad things that happen to good people. But the way you react to these bad things and the choices that you make when you come into life's pressures totally determine the outcome. And if you become bitter, yes, things may have happened to you that presented that opportunity, but you had a choice to become bitter or to become better. You could have kept a good attitude. And this is one of the things, see, about Joseph that God has just used to speak to me. I mean, Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. 
You know, in my understanding, going through Scripture, I can only think off the top of my head of two people in the Bible, two major characters in the Bible who were not rebuked and had some major character flaw shown in the scriptural account of their lives, and that's Samuel and Joseph. Now, everybody else, Moses had some major problems, killed a man thinking that was God's will. He got angry and he did things, and because of that, God punished him and wouldn't let him go into the promised land. You can look at David, who committed adultery and murdered to cover up his adultery. And you can go through just nearly every character. You know, in the New Testament, Paul had some major problems. He consented to the stoning death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and on and on you could go. Peter, of course, was always sticking his foot in his mouth and saying and doing something wrong. Sometimes the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. I mean, he just was constantly doing things wrong. And you can see these people that God used them, blessed them, and it shows the grace of God, and there's great lessons to learn. But Joseph is one of only two that I can think of that just did not have any negatives shown in his life. I'm not saying that he was perfect. Nobody's perfect. But the scriptural account just shows him as a faithful person from the time that he was a young person seeking the Lord. And of course, Samuel was the same way. And so this is what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says all of the people that came out of the land of Egypt had the same opportunity, but only two out of probably three million or more people were able to persevere and enter into the promised land. You know, that's a shame. And it's not because that was God's will. It wasn't God's will for these people to die. That was their choices. It was the way they responded to things that caused all of this to happen. So he goes on to say in verse 6, Now these things, talking about the people that came out of the land of Egypt, and actually this applies not just to that one specific instance, but you could go to the life of Samuel, David, the kings, uh, just on and on. All of the things that were written about people in the Old Testament, their relationship with the Lord and the way that God worked in their life and through their lives to others, all of these things it says here in verse 6 were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So the reason that we have such a large Bible and that there is so much material in here is because God wrote these things down was very candid with the mistakes that people made and showed us things to the intent, here's the purpose, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. You know, I could take every one of these things that's being said and turn over and show you the corresponding Old Testament example and preach on all of these things. This is just summarizing this. I'm wanting to get to the life of Joseph, but I'm trying to show you that all of these things that were written in the Old Testament, and specifically we're going to be talking about the life of Joseph, these things were written for our benefit so that we could benefit and profit through this and learn some things. You know, there's some people that teach that you just really don't know what a person is going through until you've gone through something similar. You can't really help a person if you haven't experienced the same thing. And from that, they teach 
that really you have to experience the same hurts, the same pains as everybody else, and the only way that you can learn is just through the school of hard knocks. Well, let me say this, that I believe you can learn by your own problems and by the things that come your way, but you don't have to do that. Matter of fact, there is actually a better way to learn, and that is to learn by other people's examples. And this is what this is saying, that all of these Old Testament examples were written for our benefit so that we could learn through them. You know, I've actually uh, written an introduction to some of our CBC materials, and I tell people, I said that, you know, there's, uh, it's obvious that you can learn by hard knocks, the school of hard knocks, but there's a better way, and it's Karis Bible College. And then I begin to start talking about the hundreds of years of ministry experience that all of our instructors collectively have together and how that we share from our personal experience and that the students don't have to go out and make the same mistakes that we did. You can learn by other people's mistakes. You do not have to learn everything on your own. So this is what it's saying. The reason that these were given, like in verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. I tell you, murmuring is at epidemic proportions in our society today, even among Christians. Do you know you can take people that are morally good, they aren't going to go out here and lie and steal and, and commit adultery and do things like that, and yet many Christians, you go to talking about politics, it's just like you flip a switch and immediately there's just nothing but murmuring and complaining. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have an opportunity to voice our opinion and to say things are wrong and that they need to change. I do that myself. But I'm saying that your life shouldn't be characterized as a griper, as a complainer. And yet there's many Christians when it comes to politics, when it comes to certain things, they just look for the negative. I mean, they are the cloud behind every silver lining. They are just going to see everything wrong. That's murmurers. And you could look at the children of Israel, how that they murmured, and they soon forgot all of the miracles that God had uh, performed to get them out of the land of Egypt. They forgot all of those things. They forgot that God had divided the Red Sea. They forgot that God had turned the water sweet for them and made it so that they could drink. They forgot that God had brought water out of the rock. And every time they had anything wrong, it was just like they forgot all of the past goodness of God and they just focused on the negative and saw it in the worst negative light. And what did that cause in their life? Well, as a result, that generation died out in the wilderness, which was not God's will and never did enter into the promised land. If you would study the Word and see this and keep this in front of you, I guarantee you it would impact you on a daily basis and keep you from being a griper and a complainer. That's what all of these verses are saying. The Word of God, these stories about people in the Old Testament were given for our instruction so that we could learn through them. And then it says this again in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples and are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So in verse 6 and verse 11 and all of those verses in between, it says specifically that all of these things in the Old Covenant 
or were written about people so that we could benefit, so that we could learn through them. So I say all of these things as ways of, as a way of introduction to we're going to be talking about Joseph. And Joseph is just a powerful, powerful man of God. There are very few people in the history of the world who have overcome as much adversity as Joseph overcame and have made as much of an impact, not only upon one nation, but upon multiple nations as Joseph did. Joseph had greater problems and yet greater victories. He had betrayal by his family. He was unjustly accused, not only by his family, but then as a slave and then uh, put into prison. And I mean just terrible things. Some of the things I'll be pointing out in more detail was that it was, he was 17 years old when God gave him these dreams and began the process of showing him how he was going to use him. And yet he was 30 years old when the first positive thing happened. From the time that God spoke to him, and for the next 13 years, everything that happened to him was contrary to what he had received and was believing for. Everything was going against him. And yet this man was able to maintain his faith in the Lord and keep focused upon God. Boy, that's, that's powerful right there. And if that's all we did was talk about that, that would be tremendous lessons that would help us. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll just give personal testimony that you know, back when the Lord first touched my life, March the 23rd, 1968, I was 18 years old. And yet for a number of years, uh, it was probably close to 13 years, similar to Joseph, everything in my life looked like it was not going well. I mean, I had a lot of negative things happen. And if other people, as I was speaking forth my faith and saying that God had called me to minister and that I was going to have a worldwide ministry. Everything in my life looked contrary to that. And I'm telling you, Joseph and the story of Joseph is one of the things that God used to keep me focused and to keep me going and to keep me heading in the same direction when everybody else was telling me it's foolish, you ought to quit, you ought to give up, go do something else. There was times that I felt that myself, and yet I'd go to the Word, and people like Joseph, God used them miraculously in my life. And so I'm excited to share these things. These are things that have changed me, and I believe that this has the potential of changing you. You know, if you feel like God has given you promises, it could be about healing, it could be about prosperity. It could be about your marriage, about your relationship, about your children, about your job, about your career. In all kinds of areas, if you feel you've got promises from God and yet your circumstances don't seem to line up, it doesn't look like you're healed, it doesn't look like you're prosperous, it doesn't look like your marriage is going to make it, you have the temptation to quit and to give up and to just say, what's the use? I tried. I quit. You know what? You could take a lesson from Joseph and if you will receive these things that I'm going to begin to start sharing about Joseph, I'm telling you, this could change your life. It's changed mine. It's how God enabled me to stand against things when it looked like nothing was working. And I believe that the same thing will work for you. So let's begin this study over in Genesis chapter 37. This is where Joseph is, uh, comes on the scene it had recorded his birth prior to this, but in uh, Genesis chapter 37, 
And in verse 2 it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now I'm going to make a bigger deal out of this later on in this series. But I want you to notice this right here. It says he was 17 years old when these events took place. And he was 30 years old when he finally stood before Pharaoh. And then uh, it was nine years after he was promoted to be the ruler over all of Egypt when his brethren came and he saw these dreams actually come to pass. So altogether, it was 13 years before the first positive thing happened in Joseph's life. And it was an actual 22 years before he saw the dreams that God is, is going to record right here come to pass. Now let me just ask a question. And this is something, see, that I learned through the life of Joseph. And I could apply this same thing to Moses, to David, just across the board. I believe it's the way that God deals with us. First of all, God plants a dream in our heart. Or you could say a vision. He places a desire, a stirring just some kind of a knowledge that God has created us for something more. He puts this dream, this vision, this goal on the inside. And I believe that one of the reasons that God, first of all, starts with a dream and revealing a goal, a vision to you, is because in between the time that God calls us and when we see that calling manifest and things come to pass. I can guarantee you there are going to be some trying times in between your call and the actual fulfillment of it. Now, some people don't like to hear this, but again, if you go back to the Word of God, and like we were talking about from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if we use them as examples and say this is how God deals with people and this is how things work, you can turn to every major character and from the time that God calls them until the time that they see the fulfillment of the vision that God has given them, without exception, there's always going to be hardship. Now, I will disagree with some other people in the sense of saying that God is the one that causes the hardship. I don't believe that God is the one who's making us suffer and causing hurt and pain in our life. But you are just swimming against the stream. This whole world system is a fallen world. It's not the way that God intended it to be. You are going to have opposition. Satan is going to come immediately to steal away the Word. I'm not saying God is the source of these problems that we encounter. But I am saying that living in a fallen world with demonic opposition coming against us, there is going to be resistance. If you never bump into the devil, it's because you're both headed in the same direction. Second Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Yea, all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you aren't being persecuted, if there's not resistance coming against you and things that look contrary to what God has called you to do, it's because you aren't living godly. If you are living godly, I guarantee you, you are going to bump into the devil. If you never run into the devil, it's because you're both headed in the same direction. When you turn around and start swimming upstream, it's going to take more effort. There is resistance against you when you swim, up, swim upstream. Even an old dead fish could float downstream. 
And sad to say, this is what the average Christian is doing. They just kind of on their little inner tube and they're just going with the flow and they have no control of where they're going. They're kind of like a pinball. You just launch that ball and it just bounces off things and gravity pulls it down. And, and you know what? They just don't have any more control over their life than a pinball in a pinball machine. I'm telling you, if you are going to fulfill God's will for your life, God is first of all going to plant a dream on the inside of you that's going to turn your attention, turn your direction around. You're going to start swimming upstream. It's not going to come to pass without effort. You are not going to have life just automatically fate make God's purpose for your will come to pass. You are going to have to get a vision. You are going to have to move in that direction. There is going to be resistance and opposition and there is going to be some time involved. And that's the reason that God starts with planting this dream in your heart and giving you a dream of something bigger, better than what you're experiencing because you're going to need that dream. You're going to need to hold on to those promises of God and it will have to give you strength and encouragement as you go through that time in between when you say, uh, you know, get the vision from God and then you say, here it is. This is the fulfillment. There's going to be some rough times in between there. And because of that, God will always start with planting a dream in your heart. So the very first thing about uh, Joseph here is that God starts by putting dreams in his heart about what he has planned for him. In verse 3, it says, Now Israel Israel and uh, Jacob are the same person. Jacob was named that at his birth, but when he wrestled with an angel, the angel changed his name to Israel. So Jacob and Israel are the same person. Verse 3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Boy, now here are some important truths right here. You know, I made a statement that Joseph is one of only two biblical char characters that, you know, just come to me. I haven't actually done a total study and to verify this, but off just the top of my head, Samuel and Joseph are the only two biblical characters that I can think of that didn't have major character flaws that were revealed and then they had to have God come and supplement and overcome those things and eventually they wound up being successful. But Samuel and Joseph are people that just have sought God since they were children and I mean God used them and they didn't have these major character flaws reported. I'm aware that some people think, well, no, Joseph was a little brat. He was arrogant. He was boasting to his brothers and talking about how that he was loved of his father more than they were. And he told his dreams. And so Joseph, I've had people say this before, that Joseph occasioned the rejection by his brothers. And it was his own immaturity and pride and arrogance that caused all of these things to happen. But I want to point out right here in verses 3 and 4, Genesis 37, 3 and 4, it says that Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than all of his brethren, and he preferred him and demonstrated it by making this coat of many colors. And in verse uh, 4, it says, And when his brethren saw that their fathers loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. 
So right here in verse 4, it says that the hatred that his brothers had for Joseph originated before Joseph had received these dreams and before he shared these dreams with his brothers. So the reason I'm pointing this out is to say, I don't believe that Joseph was just a spoiled brat that went out and spoke these things and caused his brothers to reject him. They had already hated him because of Israel's treatment of Joseph. So the hatred, of course, ultimately people have to assume responsibility for their own actions. These brothers were evil men. I'm going to point this out more as we go through this series. But Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, is a, he committed incest with his father's wife. Not his own mother, but one of the other wives of Jacob. So he committed incest with her. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born of Jacob, they went out and murdered. I don't even, it, the scripture doesn't say, but they murdered all of the men that were in one town in this town of Shechem. And they just murdered them all. Through lies and deceit, they got them into a position where they were weak, and then they came in and murdered all of them. They were murderers. In Judah, the fourthborn of Jacob, you can read this over in the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. He committed incest with his own daughter-in-law. And you can just go right down the line. These were wicked, evil men. And so... I believe that it is totally wrong to put all of the burden of, you know, their rejection of Joseph upon something that Joseph did that occasioned this. Before he ever shared his dreams, before he had spouted out all the things that God had spoken to him, this verse right here makes it clear that his brothers had already rejected him and hated him in their heart because of his father's preferential treatment of him. And here's one of the lessons that you can learn from the story of Joseph. If you're a parent, you don't need to prefer one child over another. You need to love all of your children. And I believe that Joseph was set up in this. And again, these brothers have to assume responsibility for their own actions. But it was fueled and uh, given an occasion by the father's preferential treatment of Joseph. You should not do that with your children. This is one of the lessons that we can learn. You know, if you have children and you prefer one over another, I know that sometimes it's hard not to have a favorite, one that may, uh, you know, uh, fulfill your desires for them more than the other, but you can't do that. If, if you go all the way back to Jacob and his brother Esau, this same thing happened with his parents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his venison. And Esau was just a man's man. He was a hunter. He was this guy that was just a, you know, a tough guy. And Jacob was like a mother's boy. And he, he was preferred by his mother. And so there was this division in the family and it led to this fight and to this separation. And Jacob literally had to flee from Esau to save his life because Esau was thinking of killing him. And it caused all kinds of problems. You can just go on and on. These are some of the lessons that you can learn, not only through Joseph, but just through Old Testament. You can see that where one child was preferred above another, it caused problems. So anyway, this problem existed before Joseph got these dreams from God. So again, I do not believe that Joseph somehow or another occasioned and caused this rejection by his brother. 
I think at the very worst, the worst thing that you can attribute to Joseph based on scriptural account is the fact that he might not have used as much wisdom and maturity as he should have had to just speak forth his dreams. Now that's the worst thing that you could say about him, but I'm not even sure that you could sit there and blame him for that. You know, I had a friend of mine that just constantly was speaking forth his dreams about how he was believing God for all of these big things. And I had people that came around me, and I mean, he'd been doing this for 20, 30 years, and none of these things had come to pass. And I had people come to me and say, when he's at your meetings, you need to tell him to quit speaking forth his vision and quit blabbing and telling people these things because he's been saying this for decades and none of it's ever come to pass. And I told him, I said, I admit that that is somewhat of a problem and it causes confusion in people. But I said, you're trying to get this person not to be who he is. He's just a visionary. He's always dreaming big. And I said, if he starts stifling that and holding it in, then the very things that you like about him is just his freedom and liberty and how he just says things and flows in the Holy Spirit. I said, you're going you're gonna to make this man be something that he's not. And I said, I j I'm just not going to tell him that. I can't sit here and tell him not to say these things. So he may not have been using the best wisdom in always sharing these things. You know, Jesus said not to cast our pearls before swine. And I believe that it's true that, you know, you need to be careful who you share your vision with because you can have criticism and unbelief directed back towards you by people who don't understand and are trying to squelch your vision. So I acknowledge that, that yes, it, Joseph might not have used as much wisdom as he should have, but I don't know that you can sit there and blame a person when God shows them something and they are just so excited that they just blurt it out, especially a 17-year-old boy. The second verse of Genesis chapter 37 says that Joseph was only 17 years old when all of this happened. And so, you know, you might be able to say, well, there's some mistakes made with, uh, you know, just youth and immaturity, but I don't know that you can sit there and criticize and blame a person over that. So anyway, my take is that Joseph, everything that you see later in this story, it shows so much integrity. It shows so much trust and reliance upon God that to me it's inconsistent to just sit here and label him as a spoiled brat, someone who is just out rubbing his brother's nose in the fact that he was going to prosper, he was going to be better than them. I don't think that that was Joseph's attitude at all. I think that's inconsistent with what we see in his life. At the very worst, I think he might have used more wisdom and maybe kept some of these things to himself, but I'm not sure that that even was the right course of action. He was just excited. God spoke to him and he just out of uh, enthusiasm spoke forth his visions of what God had done in his life and his brothers hated him for it. So in verse 5, it says, And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it his brethren and they hated him yet the more. Now notice that they had already hated him because of the preferential treatment of their father uh, for Joseph over them. So I don't think that Joseph occasioned this, but his dreams and him speaking forth his dreams did exacerbate the situation. It did make it worse. And so in verse 6 it says, they said un he, he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance 
to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And so the interpretation of this dream was pretty obvious. You know, these sheaves just all stood up and Joseph's sheaf stood straight and all of the other sheaves bowed down to him. And it was symbolic of the way that all of his brothers would someday come and bow down to him. And of course, it was just their pride, the fact that they did not uh, agree with the way that Jacob, the father, had preferred Joseph and it exalted him above the other brethren. They were jealous of it. You know, you can go back to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, and there it says, Only by pride cometh contention. This is describing contention, hatred between, uh, from the brothers against Joseph, and the scripture says that the only reason that comes is because of pride. They were jealous of Joseph. They were older than him. They might have been stronger. They may have been all of these other things. And they just resented the fact that Joseph's father had preferred him over them. And now here's Joseph having dreams where he was seeing his brothers fall down and worship him and make obeisance unto him. And it was their own pride that caused this. You know, you'll find this, that you, when God reveals His will to you and you start heading in that direction, sometimes, matter of fact, most of the time, the criticism that you will first receive will be from your own family members. And some people find this hard to understand, but Jesus said the same thing over in Mark chapter 6 and other places. He says, they, uh, a prophet is not without honor except in his own house, among his own family, his own kin, and his own brethren. And the reason for this is because people look at you. I mean, the, your brothers and sisters, your parents, they've seen you since you were a little tiny kid. They've seen you with a runny nose. They, they had to change your diaper and wipe your bottom. And they just look at you and don't, they don't see you as being special. They see all of the bad things about you. They know all of the wrong things that you've done. And then you come out and say, God has called me. God has placed an anointing on my life that God is going to use me in some supernatural fashion. And I believe it's pride on the part of our relatives, those who know us the most, to sit there and resist God using us in a special way. It's just pride. They don't want to think that you somehow or another are going to be used more than they are. It causes these people that either they have to humble themselves and say, well, if God can use my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, if he can use them and these supernatural things can happen through their lives, well, then that means that I have not lived up to my full potential because if God used them, he could have used me. We came from the same family. We had the same background. And if they have risen above me and are being used by God more than me, then maybe I've missed it. Maybe there was something more for me. And rather than most people humble themselves and acknowledge that and instead be motivated and inspired to come up to your level, the easier thing to do is to tear you down and to criticize you and to come against you. Jesus' own brothers did this. They came against him. You can see that in the seventh chapter of the book of John. And they mocked him and said, if you're really the Christ, well then go up to Jerusalem and reveal yourself. And they did that because they knew that people were waiting to kill him 
and they were mocking him. And it says that his own brethren didn't believe in him. You can see this with David, that when he went out to fight Goliath, the person who spoke against him was Eliab, his eldest brother, who had been rejected by God to be anointed to be king. And Eliab was just full of jealousy. And he came out against David and said, With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? This is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And he began to criticize him and say, You're shirking your duties, when the truth was that it was their father, Jesse, who had sent David on this error. He was totally doing what his father wanted him to do, also what his heavenly father wanted him to do, and it was nothing but jealousy on the part of his brother that was causing this criticism. And you can see this same thing. His brothers hated him, not because of something that Joseph did, but just because God was exalting him. God was going to use Joseph in a way that he wasn't using these other brethren, and it was nothing but jealousy on their part. Again, Proverbs 13.10, Only by pride comes contention. Once you understand this, then when you encounter criticism and people start persecuting you because of your stance for the Lord and what you're saying, you can actually look at it and receive it as a compliment. It means, you know, here's another way of saying this. The way most people define a fanatic is somebody who's just, you know, over the top doing all this. But here's the way I define a fanatic. When you say somebody's a fanatic, you know what that means? That means that they love God more than you do. They're more committed to God. They're seeking God. They are more zealous for God than you are. And most people just want everybody to be like them. In a sense, it justifies their mediocre life. It justifies them looking at their life and thinking, well, I'm just like everybody else. Everybody else seems to be struggling the same as I am. But when somebody comes along and says, no, I'm going to be different and that the power of God will flow through me, you know, under our new covenant, then I'm going to start seeing the dead raised, blind eyes open. I'm going to do what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, that the same works that He did, I can do also. And when somebody starts believing for that and moving in that direction, then all of the people who just want to maintain the status quo and be just the average dead Christian that has no manifested power in their life, they're saved and stuck and waiting until they go to heaven to start seeing any real glory manifested in their life. All of the... All of the you know, mediocre Christians are going to fight against you and criticize you because if what you are saying in the direction you're heading is true, well, then that condemns their lifestyle. And rather than them humble themselves and change, it's easier to just tear you down and try and pull you down to their level rather than them coming up to your level. That's what you see happening right here. It was their own pride. It was their own jealousy. They wanted Joseph to be just like them. And here he is saying that God is giving him dreams and showing him that someday his brothers would come and bow down to him. Man, that was offensive to them. In verse 8, or excuse me, we read verse 8 and verse 9. It says, He dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance unto me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brothers envied him, but his father observed the same. 
Again, go back to that verse I used, Proverbs 13, 10. Only by pride comes contention. Right here it says, His brothers envied him. This shows you that the root of their rejection was all in pride. They wanted themselves to be exalted. They did not want their younger brother to be exalted. Man, there's some important things here. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. Joseph had 11 brothers. And so those 11 stars were symbolic of his 11 brothers. His, the sun and the moon were his father and mother. And you can see that by the way that his father, Jacob, interpreted this. Shall I and your mother and your brothers come indeed bow down to you? And they all rejected him, thinking he was just operating in pride or in arrogance. But no, he was operating in humility. God was revealing these things to him. Before God uses a person, He will always drop a dream in your heart. It doesn't have to be a necessarily a physical dream when you're asleep and your eyes are closed, but just a vision, a desire, a prophecy about what He wants to do with your life. He will start with a dream. One of the things about Joseph's life is that God revealed Himself to Joseph in these dreams when he was 17 years old and yet it was 13 years later, when he was 30 years old, before the first positive thing happened. Boy, this really parallels my life. You know, I had this encounter with the Lord in 1968, and uh, that is when the Lord really touched my life and just put a dream in my heart that somehow or another He was going to reveal Himself to me and He was going to use me to touch people worldwide, that I was going to have a worldwide ministry reaching millions of people. And yet it was at least 12 years and really longer than that before I saw the first really positive thing begin to happen. For about 12, 13 years, man, it just seems like that people stayed away from my churches and my meetings by the thousands. And if you just looked in the natural, there was no evidence of the things that were in my heart. There was nothing in the natural that was reflecting the vision that I had in my heart. Some people might wonder, why does God do that? Why does God put a vision in your heart years, maybe decades before it comes to pass? And I believe that the reason for it is because there's just so much that has to change on the inside of us. There's so many things that he has to work. And if he didn't have this vision out in front of us, then we wouldn't stick with it. We'd quit. We'd run along the ways. Let me turn over to Psalms chapter 105 and read some. We're studying the life of Joseph. And of course, that's recorded in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Psalms, the psalmist here is talking about Joseph. In Psalms 105 and in verse... Um, 17, it says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. You know, let me just expound on this a little bit right here in verse 19. Until the time that his word came. That's talking about until the time that the word that God had given him came to pass. Or you could say, until he saw the fulfillment of these things that God had spoken unto him, the word of the Lord tried him. Now, when did Joseph get a word from the Lord? 
The only thing that's recorded in Scripture is these two dreams that are recorded over in Genesis chapter 37. And I believe that God revealed His Word, His plan, you could say His destiny for Joseph to him through these dreams. And that was the Word of the Lord to him. You know, at this time, they didn't have Scriptures written down. People were having to have these personal encounters with the Lord where God would literally speak to them or angels would visit them or something. They didn't have a written Word the way that we have today. That's not to say that the written Word is inferior. Matter of fact, over in the New Covenant, it says that the Word of God is a more sure word of prophecy. Out of 2 Peter chapter, or 1st or 2nd Peter chapter 1, it talks about we have a more sure word of prophecy than all of these things. So what we have, the Word of God, God can take these words that are recorded in the Bible and quicken them to you, and that is the Word of the Lord. But prior to them having a written passage of Scripture, uh, the Lord revealed Himself to people in dreams, in angelic visitations. So these two dreams that came to Joseph were... God spoke to him and showed him that somehow he was going to be elevated and that his brothers and even his father would come and bow down and worship him. That was God's word to Joseph. And he gave this promise to him because in between God revealing this word and the fulfillment of those visions where his brethren came and bowed down to him, there was going to be a lot of hard times. Again, I don't believe God is the one that caused these hardships on him. But nonetheless, when you have God's Word revealed to you, when God reveals His will to you, there's going to be some hard times in between when you get that revelation and when you see them come to pass. That's just the way that it is. We live in a fallen world. And I can guarantee you, everything in this world system, all of the demonic powers and everything, are fighting against your vision. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that there is going to be opposition. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If the only reason you wouldn't be persecuted, the only reason there isn't resistance against you is if you aren't living a godly life. If you are living for God, it's like swimming upstream and it takes more effort to swim upstream than it does to float downstream. So here's some of the things that are counter to our culture today. And yet you can see this in the life of Joseph and not only Joseph, but every major character that God used in the Bible. In our culture today, people think that, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be that somehow or another fate just controls things and that things just automatically work out. And sadly, the body of Christ has taken that attitude and even amplified on it. And they teach what is typically called the sovereignty of God, that just like a chess piece, God just moves you around and every single thing that happens in your life is God-ordained. If you've got a cancer, if you've got problems, if your business fails, if your marriage fails, any negative thing that happens to you, it's God doing this. And He is just going to sovereignly, independent of you, make His will come to pass in your life. That attitude, that doctrine is prevalent in the body of Christ today. And I can tell you that is not true. That is not what the Word of God teaches. I could spend literally weeks 
teaching on this one thing right here. In my estimation, I think that is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ, that God sovereignly just makes everything come to pass in your life. If you know anything about Scripture, you should reject that. For instance, the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, it makes it very clear that He never intended for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness and to die in the wilderness. His will was to bring them out of Egypt and after a one-year period of time in the wilderness where they received the commandments and all of the instructions for a nation, then they were supposed to enter into the promised land. But it was their own unbelief that kept them from doing that. Let me give you a scripture that will just summarize that and verify that. Over here in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Short of it, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. If you take this in context, he's talking about the Jews that came out of the land of Egypt and they didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with faith. They got into unbelief and because of that, God's perfect will for them did not come to pass. A passage of scripture that God has used big time in my life, Psalm 78, 41. And again, this is talking about the Israelites and them going through the wilderness. And here's what Psalm 78 41 says, it says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now this sovereignty of God teaching, the extreme sovereignty of God that is often embraced and taught in the Christian church today says that whatever God's will for you is, it just automatically comes to pass with or without your cooperation. This says that you can limit the Holy One. Not because you somehow or another are stronger or more powerful. It's because He does not force His will upon you. It takes cooperation on your part to get the will of God done in your life. If you don't embrace the will of God and pursue it against all opposition and all odds, you will not see God's will come to pass in your life. Man, that's a huge statement right there. And again, this goes contrary to a lot of religious teaching. And if you think that God just sovereignly moves you around, then a lot of people could look at their life and at the hardships and the problems that have come against them and they could just think, well, God doesn't want me to prosper. God doesn't want me to be well. God doesn't want me to succeed and to do things. But that is not what the Word of God teaches. In 3 John chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And I could just go on and on and on and share scriptures on this for a long period of time. But I'm telling you, God has never made a dud. God has never made a failure. It is not God's will for any of you to be living a substandard life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The enemy, the thief, comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That was Jesus speaking. And Jesus came to give us an abundant life. If you aren't having an abundant, victorious life, it's not because God willed it to be that way. I tell you, this is a faith killer, this 
extreme sovereignty of God. I'm not against sovereignty if you'll use sovereign the way the word, the way that the dictionary defines it, where it means it first in order, rank, or authority. God is sovereign in the sense that He is almighty. Nobody is ahead of Him, above Him. Nobody dictates anything to Him. He is Lord God Almighty. And in that sense, I'll say God is absolutely sovereign. But religion has redefined the word sovereign in a way that you can't find in a dictionary to say that God just controls everything and that you have no choice in the matter. He sovereignly, independent of you, makes things happen. That is not what the Word of God teaches. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, And most people just put a period right there and they'll say, God is awesome. He can do anything. But that's not what the scripture teaches. It didn't say he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, period. It goes on to say, according to the power that works in us. In other words, God is almighty. He has all power, but he will only flow through us and bring his will to pass in our lives according to the power that is working in us. Now I could spend days teaching on what that power is, but that's faith, it's love, it's hope, it's a number of different things. And if you don't have these things working, if you get into unbelief, then just like that verse we read over in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2, their unbelief kept them from entering into the promised land. You can limit the Holy One of Israel. You can stop God's will from coming to pass in your life. You have to cooperate. And that's the reason that before God uses us, He always puts a dream in our heart, just like we're learning with Joseph. He gave him these two dreams. And you'll find later when Joseph was standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh told Joseph his two dreams that he had had, Joseph said, because the dream is doubled unto you, that means that it cannot be altered. You know, you can have a dream and God may show you what's going to happen, but maybe you can change it if you will turn to the Lord. You can see that in Daniel chapter 5, uh, 4 and 5 with Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel told him after the interpretation of this dream, you know, cut off your unrighteousness by holy living. Submit yourselves and maybe you can change this. But Joseph, when he stood before Pharaoh, he said, because the dream is double, that means it cannot be altered. God could show you something, maybe even something negative in the hope that it'll make you change your ways and not live that way. But when something is doubled unto you, then that means that it's unchangeable. So God revealed the same truth to Joseph twice in these two dreams, and he did it to establish his word, to give him a promise about what God's will was for him. And the reason he did that was because there was going to be a lot of hardship. There was going to be years that it looked like that what God's will for Joseph was not coming to pass. Matter of fact, there was things that happened that it looked like it would be impossible for God's will to ever come to pass. And so God gave him these visions, these dreams, as like an anchor to hold him and to keep him from giving up hope. Did you know that God did the same thing with me? When I had this encounter with the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, I mean immediately. God just, I didn't know the details. It was, 
You know, the scripture says that the path of the righteous is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter uh, the more you go. In other words, you can see things way off in a distance and you might be able to tell that, you know, there's something over there, but you can't, you don't, it's not clear. It's just vague. You see something in a distance, but the more you uh, travel towards it, the closer you get, the more in focus it comes, the more detail that you get. Well, it was like that with me. When I had this encounter with the Lord in 1968, I didn't have any details, but I just knew that God had done something supernatural in my life and that it wasn't just for me, but that He wanted me to share this with millions of people. I immediately, I mean within days, I started talking to my friends about someday I was going to reach millions of people. I was going to take these things that God was doing in my life and I was going to share it with millions of people. I didn't have a clue that I'd ever be on radio and television and traveling the world. I didn't know how it was going to come to pass, but I just knew this. God, it, it wasn't a dream that I had with my eyes closed. It was a dream that I had with my eyes open. But in between, when I first got that revelation and that desire, I guarantee you, I went for over a decade. I went for 12 or 13 years where every single thing in my life looked contrary to what God had placed, this dream that God had placed in my life. That is exactly what happened with Joseph. And I can tell you, during those 12 or 13 years, that it just looked like it was never going to come to pass. Instead of things getting better, they went worse. One of the things that God used to keep me encouraged and keep me going was this very story of Joseph. Joseph was exactly like this. Until the Word came to pass, until he saw the complete manifestation of it, during that period of time, which we know was 13 years, Joseph was kept by that word, that vision that God had placed in his heart. And if you'll take all of these things that I've said previous to this about God not just sovereignly bringing things to come to pass, we have to see God's will, we have to pursue it, we have to embrace it. It has to be mixed with faith for the word to work in your life. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2, if all those things be true, which they are, well then I can put this back into Joseph's life and say that these things didn't just automatically come to pass. Joseph received these dreams. These were words from God. He embraced it. Now, he may not have had the fine details. He may not have known exactly how it was going to come to pass, but he accepted and received this vision and started moving in that direction. He was believing that God was going to do something special in his life in such a way that his brothers would actually humble themselves and bow down and worship him and even his father. He may not have had a clue about how that was going to come to pass, but he, he embraced it. And that's the only reason it came to pass. The things of God do not happen in our life without our consent and cooperation. It's according to the power that works in us, Ephesians 3.20. Well, those are important things to remember. So, God gave Joseph a dream and revealed his will to him because there was going to be uh, over a decade, 13 years, where nothing positive happened. Instead, everything negative happened contrary to what it looked like. Instead of Joseph being promoted, he was sold into slavery. 
and then he was lied about by the master's wife and he was put in prison and he spent 13 years. Every step that he took was down, not up. It didn't look like he was being exalted, like he was going to somehow or another succeed more than his father and more than his brethren. For 13 years, everything that happened to him looked like it was going wrong, but he had a word from God. And I believe that this is a pattern that God uses with everybody. He certainly used it in my life. And that is that He will put a desire in your heart, a dream in your heart. And the purpose of this is because you, you need that dream there to enable you to go through the hardships and the things in between the time that God gives this revelation and when you see it come to pass. You know, you see this with athletes all the time. Here in Colorado Springs, we have the Olympic Training Center, and so we hear a lot of things about the Olympics. And, of course, you know, we watch the Olympics when they come around every four years. And these athletes, they go through a lot of hard stuff. I mean, they discipline themselves. They go to bed early. They eat certain diets. They exercise. They go through these, uh, I mean, rigorous, demanding Things. We will see bikers, Olympic bikers, going up and down the pass and doing things that I guarantee you the average person couldn't come close to doing. You, there's a lot of hardship that you go through, but you know why they do it? Because they have a goal. They see themselves standing on a platform representing their country and getting that. And that goal is what enables them to go through the hardship. If they didn't have this end result in, in view... And if they didn't have that hope and that goal in front of them, they wouldn't go through the pain and the suffering and all of the stuff that it takes to get there. But see, they have this goal, this hope is so strong that it keeps them motivated. Well, the same thing works in the spiritual realm, that God will give you a goal, a hope. He will paint this picture of what He wants to do in your life. And the reason that's important is because in between the time that He gives that vision to you and when you see it come to pass, there's going to be some hardship. Not necessarily caused by God, but just in this world, you're going to suffer tribulation. You will have people come out against you. It's harder to go against the flow than it is to just float downstream with everybody else. If God is going to really use you, if you're going to see God's will come to pass... It is going to be through perseverance, through enduring, through going through some hardship. And so God will give you this vision, a hope, a desire of something bigger and better. You know, I've mentioned this briefly, but when the Lord touched my life, March the 23rd, 1968, I mean, I had a miraculous encounter with the Lord. I could spend hours talking about it, but just instantly... I knew that God had a special purpose for my life. I, I couldn't have given you the details of it, but I started telling people immediately, I said, I am going to reach millions of people. The things that God has shown me, I'm going to share this with every person. And I had a dream, a desire that it was going to be big and it was going to reach millions of people worldwide. And yet, did you know that immediately, everything in my life began to look contrary to that. I mean, I was raised in a pretty affluent situation. We weren't rich compared to you know, everybody else, but we were certainly middle class or upper middle class. 
You know, I was, my family's one of the first families that ever got a television among any of my friends. We had a television when none of my friends had them. I know some of you young people uh, can't believe that there was ever a time you didn't have a television. We were the first ones to get a color television. We were always prosperous. But when I got turned on to the Lord and started seeking Him, immediately, man, I went from relative prosperity to poverty. I mean, when Jamie and I got married, uh, it was probably 10 years before we had enough money to pay attention. I mean, we were poor. And it was through my own stupidity. I'm not blaming God for that. But I am saying that we went through some hard times. Immediately, I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And did you know in Vietnam, I, I relate to some of the things about Joseph when he was sold into slavery. You know, those are two separate things, but, in a, but there's some similarities between it. This was not my choosing. I was drafted. I didn't volunteer. I got drafted. I got sent to the other side of the world into a position where people were trying to kill me. There was nearly twice in one day that I got killed over there. And I sat there and counted the days and wondered how this was ever going to turn around. And you know what? I was on a daily basis confronted with the fact that my life could be over. And yet I had these dreams about the future and about God using me that none of it had come to pass. And because I had that dream, it made me think that, you know what, I am going to survive this. I am going to live through that. And I believe that exact same thing happened with Joseph. Joseph embraced these dreams. He believed them. So here in Genesis 37, we've already shared about his dreams, how his brothers hated him, and his father sent him to take some food to his brothers who were feeding all of the flocks and to inquire of their well-being and stuff. And in Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, it says, When they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Did you know this was murder? This wasn't just some crime of passion that they had an argument and in the heat of the battle they mistakenly were going to kill him. This was premeditated murder. These were evil men. And some of you may not have this perspective, but if you go back earlier in the book of Genesis, Simeon and Levi, two of the older brothers, they went in and killed every man in a town, murdered them, murdered them, and took all of the wives and the children captives. And I mean, they were vicious men. They were murderers. This was evil. And in verse 21, it says, And Reuben heard it. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, and he actually was not a very godly man. He committed incest with his father's wife, but he was more moral than to kill uh, his younger brother, Joseph. And so it says, And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So later in this story, you'll see that Reuben went someplace and when he came back, they had already sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites that were going down to Egypt. And when he didn't find Joseph in that pit, he came to his brothers thinking that they had killed him and done something with him. And it shows you that Reuben was going to you know, spare his life and deliver him back to his father. 
So God used Reuben to uh, keep them from killing him. And you know, the scripture does says over in Genesis chapter 50, uh, after uh, Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers and after they had lived there for a period of time, 17 years, his father, uh, Jacob, or Israel, lived in the land of Israel and then he died. And after Israel's death, which means this was 17 years after they had been in, uh, the pro- in uh, Egypt. And it was 22 years after these dreams when they first came and, and found out who Joseph really was. So you add that 17 to it, that makes it what? 39 years later, Joseph said, God is the one that sent me before you so that he could preserve life. And it also says in Psalms 105 that God sent a man, Joseph, down there. Now, some people have extrapolated from this and said that God is the one who put Joseph through all of this hard stuff. Uh, It's for sure that God used it, but I don't believe that God is the one that caused all of this. You know, you could just as easily interpret this, that here are these mean brothers who had killed hundreds of men already, And they nearly were going to kill Joseph. And God used Reuben to save his life. And it might be that selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt was God's way of saving his life. You know, I don't don't know how to explain all of these things. God uses all of this ungodliness and all of these things that are going on, but that doesn't mean that God causes it. Did you know I was talking about how that Right after I made this commitment to the Lord, 1968, it was in June of 1969 that I got drafted and sent to Vietnam. And looking back, in hindsight, did you know that Vietnam is one of the best things that ever happened to me? In Vietnam, I was a chaplain's assistant without a chaplain. I didn't have a chaplain on my support base. And so all day, every day for 13 months, or the majority of that time, I was without a chaplain. And I just sat in my bunker and read the Bible for anywhere from 10 to 15 hours a day. I just studied the Word. In hindsight, I look back and that just transformed me. I'm not sure I could have seen that happen if I would have stayed in the States and have just gone through things the way that other people did. So God used a war in Vietnam to transform my life. But are you going to blame God and say that God caused the war and it was God's will that He started that war just to get me over there and so that I could get into the Word 15 hours a day and get transformed and come out changed? Man, I'm not prepared to say that. I don't believe God caused that war, but that war was going on. God knew that He could get me out of that situation I was in. He could put me in a situation where I would have to turn to Him and God used it. I believe it's like that with Joseph. I don't believe that God caused his brothers to hate him. His brothers hated him of their own free will. God's not the author of this hate. But God preserved his life. And he may have just taken Joseph and sold him into slavery because that was infinitely better than staying with these ungodly brothers who were eventually going to kill him. So I am not one that says that God caused all of this. It was God's original will that God wanted Joseph to suffer as a slave for years and then suffer in prison. I don't believe that those things were God's 
perfect will for Joseph. But because of the circumstance, because of the things that were coming against him, God used all of this and was able to get him into position and put him into a place where Joseph learned a lot of things. It worked together for good. You know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Some people have taken that and said, So therefore, everything that happens to you, it's God's will. No, that's not what that says. It didn't say that everything that happens to you is God's will. It just says God can take everything and work it together for good. And He put some stipulations on it. First of all, that verse, Romans 8, 28, starts with the conjunction, and we know that all things work together. That means it links it to the previous verses where it's talking about the Holy Spirit making intercession through us. And this isn't intercession that happens without your cooperation. The actual Greek word, I'm not sure I can pronounce it, I think it's something like parakletos, and it means to take hold together with us. When you start interceding and you are doing it with all of your heart in faith, then the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you and intercedes through you. He doesn't intercede for you without your cooperation. It's not you without Him. But when you intercede in faith, the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you. And that means if that's being done, you interceding in the power of the Holy Spirit, then things work together for good. If you aren't interceding, they don't all work together for good. And it goes on to say they work together for good to those who love God. This doesn't mean that every single thing that happens to every single person is somehow or another God-ordained and that God makes it happen. No, but if you love God and then if you are called according to His purpose. Over in 1 John chapter 3, I believe it's around verse 6 or 8, it says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that He might destroy the works of the devil. So God's purpose is to destroy the devil, to resist the devil. If you're resisting the devil, if you love God, if you are interceding in the power of the Holy Spirit, then and only then can God take anything that happens and work together for good. But that doesn't mean God caused those things to happen. God can just work it together for good. If you're going through a divorce, if you've already been divorced, you know what? You can learn something through that. You could turn to God and say, Oh God, What's going on? Help me. And you could, it could work together for good. But God did not cause your divorce. If you get cancer, you could turn to the Lord and because of that, learn a new dependence upon God that you've never had before. But God is not the one who gave you that cancer. It is not God using cancer. If you really believe that God gave you your cancer and that somehow or another this is God's will, then why are you going to the doctor? Why are you taking medicine trying to get out of God's will? If it's really God's will, well, then let it have its full course and just submit to it. Why would you resist it? See, that's inconsistent. God isn't the one who's caused the problems in your life, but if you love God, if you are resisting the devil, if you are allowing the Holy Spirit to energize your intercession and your prayers, then God can take anything that's happened in your life and work it together for good. And that's what He did with Joseph. God didn't cause all of these hardships. God didn't cause the brothers to hate Joseph. But God used all of these things. And even their lust and desire for money, instead of killing him, 
He just took their greed and they said, you know, why should we uh, kill our brother and be minus the money that we could get by selling him? Let's sell him. We can get rid of our problem, get rid of him, and we can have some money at the same time. So he even used their greed, but God didn't cause that greed. And so Joseph was sold into slavery. And you know, it doesn't record here in Genesis chapter 37, it doesn't record anything that Joseph said. But later in this account, uh, when the brothers were standing before Joseph and finally they humbled themselves and they said, you know what, this is justice. All of this has happened because we did this to our brother and when we threw him in the pit, we refused to listen to his cries. So later on, referring back to this, they mentioned that Joseph pled with them for mercy. That's not recorded here in Genesis chapter 37, but later it's recorded. And so Joseph pled for mercy and the, and the brothers just ignored him and put him in this pit and later sold him into slavery. And he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And this is amazing. And there's so many other things. We're talking specifically about Joseph, but you could learn something here. You know that there's people today who will twist the truth. They will misrepresent things. They will take statistics and make statistics say things that aren't really accurate. And they say, well, I didn't lie. Did you know that these brothers didn't specifically lie? They didn't go to their father and say, Joseph is dead and here's proof of it. No, they just took his coat, they killed an animal, they put the animal's blood on it, and then they showed it to their father, and they said, do you recognize this coat? And they let him draw his own conclusions, and he said, without a doubt, a beast has slain him, and he's dead, and he mourned. Did you know they never said that Joseph was dead, but they led their father to that conclusion. The scripture says in Exodus chapter 20, I believe it's verse 16, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. It didn't say you shall not lie. It says you shall not bear false witness. These brothers were bearing false witness. Technically, you could say, well, they didn't lie, but they definitely led their father to a wrong conclusion. And from this, you can learn that this was wrong. And it's also wrong for a person who's like a salesman to sit there and only share the good things about their product. And when the competitor comes up, they don't sit there and necessarily say that that's a lie and lie about their product. They just misrepresent it. They may show the one thing that's wrong about the competitor and they bear false witness. We sometimes don't tell the whole truth. We misrepresent things. We only tell our side of the story. That violates what the principle of Exodus 20:16, about you shall not bear false witness. And this was wrong. It's wrong for them. It's wrong for us. Boy, there's all kinds of lessons that we can learn through the life of Joseph. It was wrong what his brothers did. It's wrong the way that some of us misrepresent things, misrepresent our qualifications, on and on and on we could go. Man, there's some great lessons to learn through this.